0: I think a naturalist view of ethics is, I think it beats the uh, the religious view, um, I really do. I think that we can grant, and that is, again, that that is Spinoza, he's the first person of the modern world who try to ground, that's what the ethics means, grounding it in naturalism. So I, yeah, I'm just entirely inspired by him. He is my, you know, when, I used to say I am the only, um, Well, I used to live in New York. I used to say I'm the only intellectual Jew who's never been in um, psychoanalysis or any kind of therapy. And I just read Spinoza, you know, when I'm down. And yeah, I can't go further. He just lifts me up. He uh, gives me perspective.
1: Hello, this is Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 174. And this episode is with Rebecca Goldstein, who is a philosopher and novelist that received her PhD in philosophy from Princeton University. She's also a, a MacArthur Fellow, who was awarded the National Humanities Medal by Barack Obama and is an expert on Spinoza and Girdle, and has a bevy of other wide-ranging interests. So, consequently, you won't be surprised to hear that we had a very wide-ranging conversation. We started off by discussing her influential novel, The Mind-Body Problem, and then some connections to the philosophy literature before, or the philosophy of literature, I should say, before getting to her atheism, her aforementioned expertise on Spinoza, and what makes life meaningful especially when one doesn't believe in God. So Rebecca's most recent book is Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. And there's a link to that in the description, along with one of her other books, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, which we discuss at length when we are talking about atheism. So now... Uh, comments, likes, reviews, subscribes. They're all extraordinarily helpful and appreciated. And without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Rebecca. When we were talking before recording, it came up that after being trained as an analytic philosopher in the philosophy of science, you published a novel, so The the Mind-Body Problem, before getting tenure, and when we were talking about it, you said that this was stupid, and it was a mistake, and I, I would have just thought that most people would be thrilled to publish a novel at any time, so why was it like this? This will maybe will be an insight into academia for people.
0: Yeah. Um. I always loved novels and I read them and I felt very, very um, guilty. It was like a secret, you know, that I would be reading novels when I felt I should be reading philosophy or physics or math, you know. And um, because I had to, yeah, I was, uh, came into philosophy from physics and and math and had that kind of orientation. Um, And something came over me. (laughs) I don't know. Whether, I, I had never, I should say, I, I had never an ambition to write a novel, never. You know, I just devoured them. I loved them, especially the really, you know, 19th century, big, fat, highly caloric you know, novels. And and I remember when I, I finished my uh, dissertation, I, I happened to, to have been in um, Israel at the time. And um, I finished, I sent in, uh, Tom, Tom Nagle was my uh, dissertation advisor and I sent it in to him. And then I had foregone reading novels while I was writing this uh, dissertation. And I had like, I was starved for them. And I remember there was one um, uh, bookstore that had English language novels and they were a fortune. And I was a graduate student, I had no money. And it literally was, do I eat tonight or do I buy a novel and I just had to buy, you know, a Portrait of a Lady and Jude the Obscure and you know, the bigger or the better. And so it's just always been, you know, a a passion, I would say. And then um, I remember I I read a novel, it was was by um, Mary Gordon who had been a year above me um, in my undergraduate institution at Barnard College at Columbia and um, and she had just published a novel, uh, Final Payments, and I read it. And I thought, oh, that's just wonderful. You know, that's just, there's, and there was something philosophical about it, and it was just wonderful. And I thought, you know, someday maybe I can produce one of these things. You know, a few days later, I'm getting ready for work, you know, early in the morning, and I just hear this voice, which is not mine, <laughs> saying I'm often asked what it's like to be married to a genius. I was married to a very brilliant man at the time, um, the physicist Shelley Goldstein. But he, like me, was very much in the beginning of his career. I had never been asked what's it like to be married to a genius. That that was not my voice, you know, and it sounded very plaintive, sounded you know, full of I don't know, unrequited longing of some sort. You know, she didn't seem happy that voice, and I just thought, well, either I'm going mad, um, or this or this is a novel. And I have to discover who this protagonist is. And, you know, and it was just, um, I don't know if it was a temporary madness or a temporary sanity. I mean, I still, to this day, you know, we, both of them would have, they're equally likely hypotheses. Um, I don't know. Um, but I had to write it. You know, it was there. It was intriguing. Um, and it, in fact, gave me some of my... Best ideas that I'm still following out. Um, you know, some of the ideas about mattering and our longing to matter, and um, uh, that I'm, you know, that have somehow have been developing over the whole course of my right uh, career, whether in fiction or in nonfiction. And sometimes when I write a book, I can't even tell anymore which it is—fiction or or nonfiction. So, anyway, that's. That's how it happened. But it was stupid in a way, because um, it was not the thing to do. I mean, first of all, what year was this? You know, I got my doctorate in 1977. Women in philosophy, (laughs) especially women in philosophy of science, you really had to do everything right.
1: There was a lot of prejudice. Oh,
0: Oh, God, yes. And to publish a novel which got quite a bit of attention. And a novel kind of from the, on the outside of analytic philosophy because just somehow that was the outside position that I just wanted to write from. I think I should say another thing that had happened to me was that um, I had lost my father. I had just lost my father, whom I completely adored and revered. And, um, and I had given birth to my first child and I thought, well, wow, yeah, I'm a PhD in philosophy. I'm teaching, you know. I'm, a prof- you know, assistant professor. And um, you know, when it comes to these questions of you know how to deal with grief, how to raise a child, all of these kinds of questions, I'm an I'm an idiot. My training, quite the kind, you know, I'm, I've been so closed off about these things and sort of relegating them to oh. Well, the kind of things that existentialists deal with, or you know,
1: yes, that's what I was thinking.
0: You know, and um, you know, which I I scoffed at, but I I just realized no, I mean, I'm a philosopher. I should have something. So I needed to be in a metaphilosophical state outside of my philosophical training, and I think that's one of the reasons that I I had my my uh, narrator uh, take such a an outside point of view, but it didn't win me any points (laughs) within philosophy. So in some sense, it was a very stupid thing to do, but there it was.
1: Yeah. Well, I can empathize with a lot of the things that you said. Do I eat tonight or uh, buy a novel? What a great (laughs) predicament to be in. But I, I, I mean, I also feel just the way you felt guilty about buying novels or reading novels. I feel a bit guilty about doing this podcast sometimes because I spend a lot of time on it and Reading fiction or writing fiction, both of which I do a lot. I just read um, *The Handmaid's Tale* for the first time, and it was a great experience. But my advisor probably would have preferred if I were reading uh, *Quine*, who's great too. But uh, sometimes the soul needs the soul needs literature. But yes,
0: yes. I mean, the other thing I should say is my dissertation had been on. I, I think a. I had argued for panpsychism. I had, uh, it was um, at that oh, really? point, yeah. Um, and I was very, you know, I was coming from it, you know, from a background in physics. It was very much centered on what are the conditions for a reduction? You know, what does it take? What, and, and my, I guess my case study was um, thermodynamics, the reduction to statistical mechanics. Mm-hmm. What would it take to actually say, you know, he does not think about molecular motion, you know, and this or, you know. So what? What are these kinds of like ident- nothing but statements, reductions, take and saying no? We're not there. We're, we're not there now. And you know, what would it take? And I sort of, kind of was going towards. You know, I've always been a materialist, um, but I didn't. You know, I had an argument against. Re- it was similar to the kind of argument that i subsequently learned Bertrand russell had made that sort of and um but just the richness of the inner life you know what it is to be a conscious human i mean uh, any sentient creature but we're particularly complicated you know the inner life of a character um was very much on my mind i thought because also of my great passion for um, for novels and poetry um, and how hard it is to get it into words you know to to get all the nuances of, of consciousness of human consciousness into language which is such a struggle as a struggle that you struggle with in you know, in poetry and in fiction and so and then i th- so it was, wasn't so much of a surprise that when it came to it, um, the novel was called the My Body Problem, you know, and uh, it was before David Chalmers had named it the Hard Problem of Consciousness. But and um, I don't know that that would have been such a good. I could have called it that if that's. But anyway, so that also fed into this this first novel, and interesting enough, a few of my friends in. Philosophy told me that they never understood what people were going on about with what we now call the hard problem of consciousness um, until they read the novel, actually. So that made me feel really? extremely, I don't know if it made me feel more pleased or gratified than just astounded, <laughs> really. Because um, I had been quite flippant about all that. I was very kind of flippant, yes, um, I think, when it came to the philosophy there. Anyway, so all of that, and probably more, I don't know, I still puzzle about it. Um, and I still often think it was a mistake, and I would just have been happy to be a regular old philosopher, what I had always aspired to be. Because once you're outside of the community, and I felt very much an outcast, um, and, I, it, and I really separated myself after that. Um, I... Um, You know, you need people to talk philosophy about I mean, you really do. And and I don't like really talking about literature terribly much. Um, I like talking about philosophy. That's where I I always need the input, because one's intuitions can be so wrong. Um, And so, yeah, anyway. So sometimes I think, what the hell? If I could go back, I wouldn't do um, it that way, or at least I don't, wait till I go down here. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I'd like to get back to the ideas about consciousness, but first, I mean, you mentioned that the novel was on the outside of philosophy and you mentioned uh, ideas like grief and, and raising a child and the complexity of inner life. And as you said, these things strike me as existential concerns as connecting much more with continental philosophy than analytic philosophy and and this is more of a a broad question then I see uh, continental philosophy in many ways as as continuous with at places and certainly very close to literary criticism and literature. but I was wondering where you because i I know that you you 've taught and lectured on philosophy and literature where you see it most closely connecting with analytic philosophy, because I I can think of some writers like Jorge Luis Borges, like so many of his, uh, like the library of Babel. I mean, that is fodder for tons of uh, um, like Daniel Dennett writes about that very often. It connects with his work, but where in general you see literature is connecting with analytic philosophy.
0: Mm. Um, Yeah. I mean, Borges is, is a, is a wonderful example. I mean, um, you know, and, you know, and in some sense, a novel is a, is an extended thought experiment, you know, and, and of course we're always doing in, in philosophy and analytic philosophy, thought experiments, you know, and, um, so it's, um, you know, and, and so that's, that's how, where I think of the connection, um, but But in a a novel, um, you, uh, you, you want people to feel you, you know, it's a, it's a real balancing of, you can't, I like putting arguments into novels. (laughs) Um, and you know, I have one novel that has quite a few arguments in them, but, um, but in some sense, the arguments, which I, are mostly in a, an appendix, I thought of as intention with the body of the of the novel. You know, with all these emotions and how much deeper it all was. I mean, in some sense, what I was trying to argue by having an appendix appendix to this novel was how little the arguments were getting at what was really going on a richness of so i actually i feel that's quite disconnected um you know which is a difficulty for me it's uh, I, the way i feel them connected is i think Oh, I don't know how I say this. I mean, I've written, you know, some sort of sort of biographies, like of Goethe and of Spinoza, and you know, and sort of a, a weird, very weird book about Plato. And um, but um, I mean, they were all weird. But uh, it's um, I mean, one of the things that I think I was very committed to, and that's been an ongoing idea, is that. Um, um, for thinkers of various kind, and for artists, and but I mean, for, for thinkers, the passion is, you know, is the ideas is is really the, these ideas. That there's a lot of story involved in that. Um, there's just a lot, you know. There was in philosophy, there's so many problems. So which, which ones call out to us? Which ones draw us? Like why? Why did uh, did Guido feel so strongly about Plato, you know, and Spinoza, you know, what, you know, it comes out of nothing, really. Well, it comes out of Descartes in a way, but still, what a thing to take on, and you know, how, what was going on, so that there's a story there, Um, there's always a story in people whose lives Thinking—it's thinking. thinking Our ideas, particular ideas, particular projects, intellectual projects. So that's, but that still doesn't say why. Um, which, yeah, I don't find most most novels um, connect with what we do as analytic. Quite the contrary, in some sense, I feel them very much in tension with each other.
1: Yeah, but I, I think considering the novel, as you said, at the outset, as an extended thought experiment is a really nice way of putting it because it's a it's a way of setting the parameters, so to speak, and then testing or uh, pumping intuitions, as as Daniel Dennett would probably say. And I also see, I mean, especially in your case, it's, it's very much a personal project for the author, describing how you had to write the novel. And in the sense that, it becomes a forge for the ideas you had, like mattering. So, writing a novel, even if the the final novel, uh, not in your case, isn't necessarily uh, a philosophical document, the process of thinking and writing uh, is an extended form of philosophical thought in many ways where it can be. Yeah.
0: Oh, I, I have to say, Infinite Jest, I found extremely ph- philosophical.
1: Yes. All those footnotes. I mean, it connects with infinity uh, a lot. Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, when he was sort of playing, you know, there was a meta infinite joke that he was hooking us into. I mean, it, it was a very elaborate. It was somebody trained in philosophy. Um, somebody who you can sometimes tell um, uh, when somebody has been, I mean, George Eliot is one of my still one of my favorite favorite writers and middlemarch is perhaps my favorite novel um, I remember when I read that in graduate school again sloughing off you know not wanting my professors to know I was reading one of these novels but um, I remember thinking this is this is a very good ethical philosophically ethical mind um, that that's leading us through this 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 novel and sure enough um when i was asked to um contribute for the oxford handbook on spinoza an essay on oh yeah an essay on writers on literary figures who um have been influenced by spinoza sure enough she had been as had also my other favorite she, you know she had she had read and studied and been the first english translator of spinoza it only came out in 1976, her translation, but um, because her um, partner had had a fight with the publisher mm-hmm. and so it was suppressed, her, her uh, translation. And um, uh, also my other favorite 19th century English language novels, um, Melvin had also been quite obsessed with Spinoza. Oh, I, I, find, I find Moby Dick also just you know, amazingly philosophical. Not necessarily analytic, but I mean, philosophy. There's, You can tell they've thought through certain problems um, in writing these novels. And so th- those are very encouraging to me. Um, I'm Smurdoch, another person who was a kind of inspiration to me.
1: Well, philosophy of science has already come up, and then you mentioned your your book that has arguments in the appendix, and and that is thirty arguments for the existence of God. Thirty six. Thirty
0: six.
1: Thirty yes. six. Sorry, I'm
0: sorry.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and I this this is serving as my segue now. So the last time religion came up on the show, I I spoke with a nuclear physicist at MIT named Ian Hutchinson who is a devout Christian. And one of his books is about how science is compatible with the miracles of the Bible. And so one thing I was hoping to talk about with you was why you've gone sort of the opposite route. And as I understand it, you were, you were born and raised uh, an Orthodox Jew?
0: Yeah, um, very much so. Um, and, um, and I kept it for a very long time. And that was also the fault of Spinoza because, so I was sent um, to a very ultra, really ultra orthodox, all girls school and for high school, terrible, terrible school. And I mostly played hockey, um, you know, trying and mostly going to libraries, trying to get myself an education. Um, And... um, because we were we were not even being trained to go on to college we were really we were being trained to get married young and um but one day when i did show up for school um we were studying in jewish history we were studying um uh modernity about which we were I and mean, we were against it <laughs> it was all downhill since babylonia you know it was as very very orthodox people we did not like modernity. We did not like the Enlightenment, um, and the story of Baruch Spinoza was told in my class as a cautionary tale of how things could go so wrong um, if you ask the wrong questions, little girls. You know, we were always constantly being warned not to question, not to, not to go to college, get married, and um, and. And then the teacher had said, um, just as, um, you know, to show us what a stupid, stupid man this this Spinoza person was, even though non-Jews thought he was quite bright, um, that he thought uh, that God was nature and that uh, the the Bible, the Torah was not written by by God. And suddenly I was like, oh, how interesting. Um, And and that was, I think, probably the only time I had ever asked a question in, in class. You know, because I was just, you know, uh, there under duress. I did not want to be there. I just showed up enough not to get kicked out. But anyway, and you know, the teacher uh, was very suspicious of my questions. And uh, and so when I, as I say, I I started when I when I would play hooky, I would mainly go to libraries. Well, the first thing I did was take out a book called The S- Story of Philosophy. And I first read the chapter on Plato, and it was by Will Durant, and it was just um, very much a popular presentation, very, um, but really quite good. Um, Will Durant had been a socialist, maybe a communist, uh, who, who who lived in the US and uh, believed very much in writing books on ideas for, for the masses, for workers, and, um, and, um, yeah, and then I read the, you know, the chapter on Spinoza um, and uh, and was kind of, you know, pretty lost and baffled, but was interested, um, was very, very interested. But one of the things that the teacher had mentioned was that he kept his um, heresy, Spinoza, which is called um, apicarsis, um, which comes from Epicurus. The word for heresy comes from his, in Hebrew is derived from the philosopher Epicurus.
1: Oh, interesting. Um,
0: so he, Spinoza had kept his heresy to himself until both his parents died, so as not to bring shame to the family. And I was, I don't know, either 14 or 15, and I vowed to myself that I would do the same thing, that I would not bring my heretical thoughts Um, out into the open until both my parents um, died. And um, partly as I suppose my training or my indoctrination in Orthodox Judaism, which takes vows extremely seriously, even though I was an atheist and became even more and more of an atheist, I kept it. I kept Orthodoxy um, until both my parents uh, had died. And, um, um, Yeah, which was very difficult because I had um, already become, you know, because I had published uh, this novel and then other novels, I'd become a little bit of a public person. People would interview me and outwardly I was an orthodox person, um, you know, keeping these laws, but inwardly, not at all, but I kind of walked this tightrope of not being hypocritical, but not bringing shame on my family because of that vow. I would never, never um, suggest that anybody do what I did. It was very felt like just a lack of integrity on my part. So when I finally did come out as an atheist, um, it felt like such a liberation and I um, became very active in what I call organized non-religion, all, you know, these many, many groups, you know, Atheists of America, Freethinkers of America, and this and that, and, you know, there's so many groups, and um, and they tend not to have that many women, and so they were very, very happy to welcome me in and give me awards, and um, Richard Hawkins award, you know, all sorts of the free thinking. Free thinking, heroin, or something like that. I don't know. I have a, like a whole bunch of. Um,
1: I saw. Of I words. saw the Dawkins Award. Yeah, yeah, it's very mm. nice award.
0: And um, so that was, you know, that's so. What I would say is, you know, I was became an atheist at about fourteen, fifteen, hit it, and then sort of came out full blast. Um, and uh, but then, then I sort of thought. I, I mean, then I you know, it felt very good for a few years. And I'm, I'm still, with a, you know, when I identify with certainly is as, as a atheist and a human, a secular humanist, um, but I often thought that they were too dismissive of, um, of religious people. Um, and that it was not just flaws in arguments, you know, flaws in thinking, that it was much more complicated than that. And, you know, my family is very orthodox, but really smart. You know, there are people in my family that, you know, I mean, their brains are really working very well. Um, and um, and I was kind of, um, I sometimes just felt like there was too much simplification going on. And I thought, and that's the, that's the kind of thing where i start thinking in terms of novels um how much more complicated these inner lives are how you know yes what complexity um in human consciousness i kept thinking somebody should write a novel about this about now at this moment of time um with you know the new what called the new atheist making quite a splash at the time and and the religious you know religious people and religious life and religious and particularly, as I know it, um, in terms of uh, Judaism, where um, loyalty to a certain history uh, has such a part to play. Um, you know, and I just kept thinking, yes, I should write a novel. And then finally, yeah, there it was. I was writing a novel on it. And that's that argument, that book, I mean, 36 arguments for thesis. of that, a work of fiction. That The, um, the subtitle was very, very important because it was the first joke. God being a work of fiction, um, but in my her- in my heretical way of thinking, um, but um, yeah, thirty six also is, is is an important number um, in in mystical Judaism. As a matter of fact,
1: mm, Kabbalah,
0: yeah, yeah, and 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 there is a tradition that there are always and every time in the world at least thirty six righteous people for the sake of whom. God doesn't destroy the world. And I grew up thinking that my father must be one of those 36 people, so that sort of that myth um has always played a big part in my inner world. So yeah. So but I did produce 36 arguments for God's existence with their flaws.
1: <laughs> right. I agree that in in my experience atheists are atheists are also, often much too dismissive of religious people and their beliefs. And for me, it arouses more curiosity than anything else. So for instance, with Ian Hutchinson, who I mentioned, uh, he's an MIT physicist. He, we spoke all about, uh, plasma physics, nuclear physics, uh, it's very hardcore intellectual stuff. So his mind is working very well, but at the same time he is, he believes that the, the miracles like turning water into wine or, uh, walking on water, these things happened. And I, I I just find it curious how he and I can both uh, have access to the same texts, uh, same sort of reasoning about their veracity and then end up with completely different conclusions that to me is it's not a, a cause for dismissal but a cause for curiosity and I, I, inquiry
0: I agree you know, I, I, I agree and um, you know I was well before um, we start you started hating. we were discussing another Goldstein uh, Shelly Goldstein um, who was my first husband and Shelly Goldstein is Again, oh really? You know, he's probably one of the smartest people. Yeah, he may be the smartest person I, I I've, I've ever known. I mean, he's just an, emperor, but certainly up there. And um, he's orthodox. He's an he's, he, he's orthodox. And um, and it was always a mystery to me. You know, the many years that we were together, how it could be. Um, but there it is. I mean, people—we're comp- people are complicated, and um, you know, um, you know, even many. So I think you know, the longing to matter is extremely deep. I think it's a defining characteristic, the in 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 what makes us human, um, and that is the longing to pr- prove ourselves. It's a little bit. Taking off of um, Tom Nagel's ideas in um, his article, The Absurd. But the longing to prove ourselves to be as deserving of our incessant self attention, our self involvement, um, as we have to be in order to live. But we can
1: take this step
0: outside and say, you know, and just look at ourselves. And it's like, we're just one of many. And, you know, we're just here for a short time. And, you know, what, gives us the right to take ourselves so seriously and and you know and out of that i think you know there's this with our lives we somehow want to so that we can live our lives without utter despair and disgust um you know which is what depression is and and the words of depression are i don't matter and i never will those are the words of depression um you know to, to keep going and this is existentialism of course I mean this is the notion of the absurd you know we find ourselves a project you know what you know a ground project and we throw ourselves into it and it's buried in there um but there are people and I know many atheists who, who are convinced that the only way that we could truly matter is if, there was a God, um, you know, who created us and who created us for a purpose, so that somehow or other we participate in the narrative of eternity. As you know, as fleeting as our lives are, that we are somehow participating. And look, I mean, I just had a um, back and forth with Alex Rosenberg, the philosopher at, you know, at Duke, and he wrote, I think it's somewhere right around here, the atheist guide to reality hardcore atheist, and he had read, an, I'm, I'm writing about this now, and he had um, read a draft of it. And I talk about different strategies of mattering. And he said, but really, the only mattering that counts is what I call cosmic mattering. That is mattering to the universe at large in the form of some kind of transcendent metaphysical entity, you know, whether you call it God or divine presence or higher principle or whatever, you know, that, that he thought that, you know, that he so and I think, I think you know where we end up, you know, on this question of mattering, you know, is a deep question about our own tempers, all sorts of things. But I think that that motivates a lot of very, very smart religious people, um, who, um, you know, they may somehow, you know, they're going to accept that the divine exists, and if the divine exists, the divine can occasionally contravene laws of nature why not you know so yeah i mean that's how i come to see it does that is that does that make any sense
1: No, that and it totally resonates with me too i, I just recently i recently reread ernest becker's the denial of death uh and which is all about he doesn't use the word mattering but it's all about the fact that we We're, we inescapably live in this world of value and we adopt heroic projects to sort of, to ensure that we matter. And I've been thinking about that myself because I'm, I'm also an atheist and in the past when I've been depressed, uh, when I've been most depressed, I've been extremely nihilistic. But what I, what I've realized is even if I, I don't think that there's a God, there's no cosmic mattering, uh, I am still human, and just by virtue of the way I'm constructed, I cannot perceive the world as being bereft of value. I can't drink this cherry coke and think it tastes good. I, I just I can't uh, have a conversation without enjoying it. I mean, it's just inescapable.
0: Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. I think. I, it, it, okay, I'm going to, how does this go down? So, you know, there are certain very, very deep things that we can't, they're built into our lives. They're built into what we can't justify them. I mean, logic is like that. We can't run circularly, um, you know, Descartes got into all sorts of trouble when he tried to, you know, now he's proves God he's going to justify logic, you know, vicious circle. Um, Or, you know, Hume is full of this, right? Um, You know, the problem of induction, you know, there is, and yet, you know, we can pursue our lives um, without believing in the uniformity of nature of things, you know, if there is a lot of evidence for a law, um, and we find a violation, seeming a violation of law, we don't say, oh, yes, miracle, you know, we go and we, back to the drawing board, we try to fix up the, our formulation of the law so that it takes into account this um, anomaly. And so, you know, that it's just the workings of of what it is to be human and to, to, to pursue a recognizably human life, um, animal life, really. And so too with our taking ourselves, you know, as mattering, that we matter. You know, if I have a desire and nothing goes against it, and you know, then I can satisfy it. I can gratify it. I can make plans for the future. I can take my future seriously. Um, I can take my survival and flourishing seriously. I have to, Um, there's no getting around it. And then, so we, we can't live our lives with regarding something as mattering, namely ourselves and also the people we love, you know, impossible not to. Um, and, um, you know, and then certain other things follow from that, you know, like, oh, well, what it, what gives us the right, it's probably something that we share with at least all other humans, right? It's not, it's not my you know, special talents or being born into some special group or, you know, those all sort of flake off, you know, they're, they're not very good, but it's probably something that we share with everybody, you know? So the extent that I regard myself as mattering, I have to regard everybody else as mattering. I mean, that's, I don't know, to me just putting it in the same kind of category as how we deal with logic and how we deal with, you know, deductive and inductive logic, um, it, that maybe this is the same kind of thing um that we do in in these values that we have and in and in and then in looking at our values you know and, and and refining them and seeing where our own um egocentric or you know ethnocentric ideas are making them less than reasonable but um, which is pretty much the story of how we've made some progress. I mean, we know that people matter. When we see what's going on in the world right, right now, when we look at, you know, what's happening in Gaza and in Israel and, you know, what children, you know, every fiber of us, you know, says, wrong, wrong, this is wrong. You know, it's, we're not nihilists. And we don't have to be, even if we're atheists.
1: No, I I agree with you, and and but tying this back to how we got on this topic, I I sorry, how
0: did we get on this topic? I don't
1: remember. Uh, um, God,
0: God, yes, yeah, but I I
1: can see how a a desperate desire for mattering can contribute to a belief in God, and I mean, without being condescending, uh, I think you and I as atheists would say that there is some flaw in reasoning that leads people to believe in God. But this, uh, this connects to the mattering because the desire to matter is emotional and being emotional, uh, gets in the way of rationality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think
1: that's, that's how I think about it. But, um, you know, maybe it would be a a good time to get into, some of the 36 arguments (laughs) themselves just because I have had a lot of conversations about the philosophy of physics and the philosophy of science lately on the show and I think that a lot of these arguments are ostensibly science-based and they connect to some of these topics quite nicely like fine tuning is one example and so I, are you familiar with Sean Carroll?
0: With who? Sean?
1: The, the name Sean Carroll. Yes,
0: I know him. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, I recently did an episode with him and, and David Albert, uh, a philosopher of physics. Yeah, at, I know him too. Yeah. Yeah, at Columbia. And we we talked a bit about fine-tuning. And just for our – well, maybe you'd like to explain how you think about fine-tuning. But Sean said that he thinks fine-tuning is the best argument Uh, for the existence of God, but it's still a terrible argument.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I would have thought that the many worlds really somewhat explodes. I mean, you know, we happen to be in a world which is conducive to, to life and to our asking these questions, but you know there are so many other, you know, in the multiverse there are so many. I mean, it seems to make it even, you know, almost all possibilities are realized. You know, there are many more possible worlds in which, uh, you know, the electron equals something different, and and uh, um, you know, it's so. I, I it it doesn't it's never held very much of. A, to me the the argument for for fine tuning, but now I just find it. I don't know why you know given that the most popular interpretation of quantum mechanics is the multiverse. We would find this at all? I don't know. I should ask actually my former husband what he what he what he thinks of it. he? Uh, I think he did not find the the argument from fine tuning to be particularly. I've always found actually um spinoza's argument um for god of course the best argument um which is you know but of course it's for a god that's just so completely different from any religious notions of god and and and, and to the extent that it's a good argument um and it and it, very much um depends on the a very strong understanding of the principle of sufficient reason you know that there always has to be a reason for why something exists you know and um and there has to be a reason for why something doesn't exist why it doesn't exist and. Um, and so, you know, what you, what you end up with is, again, this very maximal universe, which everything that could possibly exist does exist, you know, so that, um, so, you know, as long as it's not excluded from by logic, it's actually, it's almost, it's almost, I guess it's a multiverse. And, you know, and that's, and that's, that's God, you know, that's nature, that's, you know, the whole infinite order um of being um and it's uh in some sense you know it's it's godlike because it 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 explains its own existence um it exists because it has to exist by reason of the principle of sufficient reason and um and it's a object of great you know infinity that makes us feel our finitude but we have our place in it and we can contemplate it to some extent um, and, so, and, it, and to the extent that we do, it raises us up, it, it, it gives us perspective, it makes us better. It uh, snuffs out all of our negative emotions and um, uh, gives us the positive emotion of understanding. So in, in that sense, you know, to find our place in it is to understand our own being and to become better people. Um, but it's so to the extent that it's a and I, I I can get myself into that sort of state of reverence towards Spinoza's God easily. Um, but you know to the extent that I do, it just undermines any other conception of of God and uh, which is was of course part of Spinoza's argument as, as well. Mm.
1: This notion of the the state of reverence is interesting because that that is what often happens to me when I think about these science based arguments for the existence of God. Because I mean, I find the fine tuning question uh, more compelling than it yes, sounds. Yes, tell me. Yes, like you do. Well, well, I mean, there are. I think you. might I might be wrong, but I think you might be conflating two conceptions of the multiverse. So the the many worlds uh, version of the multiverse, I don't think really connects that much with fine tuning. It's just there. It's every act of um, observation can result in or results in a branching that each each branch contains every possible outcome of this observation. But the 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 sort of multiverse that you're talking about is, I think, of more maybe. St- string theoretic or inflationary where every there are sort of island universes in which every every island universe corresponds to a one of the innumerable potential potential uh varieties of physics and the reason that i just don't find that so compelling at this point is just it's an empirical question that hasn't it's a hypothesis at this point, but it hasn't really been proven or supported. It's it's purely theoretical. And in the absence of a really a knockdown sort of argument or knockdown empirical confirmation, I'm still left with the the sort of awe about how is it that physics is so perfect for for life? And if any of these little constants were just slightly tweaked. I mean not any of them. Some of them there there's more wiggle room than other others, but we just wouldn't exist. And that gets me into this state of reverence. But of course, the the problem that I identify or that isn't imp- is apparent when looking at this list of 36 arguments in the appendix of your book is that we often sort of substitute this State of reverence and awe for something that is just as equally uh, demanding of explanation, namely the existence of God. But sort of because the definition of God uh, contains his own perfection and existence, we just sort of sweep that yeah. under the rug. Yeah. See, I
0: might. I think I'm much more. Uh, I hear you, and I and you're. I think you're quite right that I was conflating two different notions of the multiverse, and I. Thank you for, for that. Um, it's, um, I think my tendency is to, my intuition is to think, you know, it's in the nature of the laws themselves. You know, we are, that would explain this, that our understanding, and I think, goes back to the original question we were talking about you know consciousness that our understanding you know of, of physics of matter um, it's so incomplete um it, i mean to me it's a, a, it's a, it's a marvel that we understand anything you know that we've gotten as far as we have and and you know and we've gotten this far because of the wedding of observation and mathematical description which I mean to me that's kind of amazing that we landed on that and it actually has worked it's worked very very well you know that this language of math has revealed aspects of matter and energy and space and time that go against our folk physics against our intuitions you know we've been able to but you know who knew that was going to work out and it did but who Who says that is giving us a complete description. We're completely dependent on mathematics to get us into these laws of nature. We've got pretty far; it's amazing. But, you know, I I find it so unlikely that it's telling us everything. And I also think, you know, what it's not telling us about is consciousness. And we know that matter is capable of consciousness because we are matter that's conscious. and so, and that you know, it's it, it's it's hard to think how physics as we know it could ever get us to that. So, you know, my all, I find a lot of these arguments from science taking for granted that our physics is much more complete. And of course, Sean, you know, has an argument that is really quite complete. Our standard physics, right? Um, But I don't buy that. I don't buy that. Um, And um, yeah, so I don't know, it's just never, maybe it's the best arguments that there is. And you're right, it it, it can wake us with wonder. I mean, the beauty of physics always is a source of great wonder. I mean, you know, that the laws of nature should be so beautiful, uh, mathematically beautiful.
1: Right. That's another argument in the book. Absolutely,
0: absolutely, I and mean, you know, I feel that really strongly. Um, but um, but, always it seems to me that we're we're just presuming that we know too much, know much more um, than we do. Um,
1: right. No, I'm I'm in total agreement with you that the solution to fine tuning lies with. Physics and, and not God and, and that the lack of our having an answer corresponds directly to our lack of understanding of physics and and consciousness. and,
0: consciousness is, is and time. The right analog. I mean, time—such a, such a—you know, time as we get it in—you know—in you know, in, you know in, in, in physics is so very different from time as we experience it. And have, you know how we bring these two things together it's there it's in time it's out there the answer is out there we we know what we know and we don't know a hell of a lot you know it's um, it's to me it's just amazing we know as much as we do we're just just a bunch of them apes.
1: Hmm. you know uh one of the the nice things though about believing in god is that it really nicely solves for these people issues like fine tuning and one that i i wanted to ask you about uh, because so i am i'm co-teaching a course right now on at the introductory ethics course here at at stanford and we just did divine command theory which is for our listeners i mean there's there's more nuance here than this uh, but the idea i think it's the 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 best or most the simplest realist account of where morality comes from of of meta-ethics basically what good is or what wrong is or what good actions and right actions are come directly from god he he decides this and that's where our ethics or morality comes from but if you are not uh, a believer in god then this throws a wrench in morality. And I'm wondering how you have come to think about morality. I mean, especially given what you, what you mentioned earlier, what's going on today and in, in Gaza and Israel, where do you think morality comes from as a, as a humanist?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, of course, the divine command theory, um, is, is always put forth as against, or, or there is. And pe- isn't it true that usually when people call it the divine command theory, they're kind of have in mind the Euthyphro argument from yes. Plato, the Euthyphro's dilemma. You know that um, that it doesn't help um, to bring God into this. And actually, Spinoza has that in, in, in the, uh, the Ethics, and but yeah, I mean Plato. Had it in the argument for in the youth of Roe, um, that either the um, yeah, because then we ask how we know that
1: subjective or subjective, uh, but neither one seems to give us what we really want because it either God just changes his mind on a whim.
0: Yeah, it's either just a whim. Yeah,
1: or we we uh, there's nothing really inherently good or bad about actions we're just trying to please God.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, the reason that God wants us to be kind to the widow and the orphan is because it's really good. Either he just had no reason for it or he does have a reason. If he if he has no reason, it's just a win. He might have just said, Yeah, go destroy as actually in the Bible he does when it's the wrong tribe, you know, go destroy every last soul. Um, but um so that's you know if it's just he has no, he has no reason um it's just his aesthetic taste or something um or he does have a reason in which case there's a reason and whatever the reason is that's the reason you know god had a reason so it's either just uh, god is either redundant or the god hypothesis is either redundant or just Yeah, it doesn't do the trick. It doesn't give us morality. It just gives us, yeah, you better remain because he's in charge, right? But it's not morality as we understand it. Yeah, well, you know, the stuff I was saying about morality, um, I mean, about mattering is the way I, you know, that to say that uh, I matter is to say that I am deserving of of certain attention from other people. I can't be treated in a certain way, you know, and, 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 it's rooted in the way we pursue our life just as the laws of induction are rooted in the way we pursue our lives there's no way um to live my life without regarding myself as in some sense matters is having a certain deservingness um to uh, um to be regarded as um, so, a so i think that's what we mean when we talk about the intrinsic dignity of, 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 of human, you know, life. Which is not to say that other animals don't also have their dignity, and or you know, it's, it's not in the in, to the degree that which they are similar to us that they get their dignity. They have their own dignity, but we have, you know, we we. I, 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 I pack a lot into the fact that we long to matter. I think, I think it shows that we do. Um, or that we can't literalize without assuming that we do, which is already a value judgment. So that we live, you know, that we're we live, we're already, we're not trying to get from is to ought. We live in the land of ought. We live in the space of ought. You know, we can't pursue our lives without that. And then we have to do it consistently, you know. Um, and so uh, in regard to her fellow creatures, but that's all the morality I need. That's all the grounding I need. If, if we actually treated each other as if we actually mattered equally, man, it would be a different world. You know, it would be so much of what we want for morality
1: for me so so uh, just to uh, try to put it into my own words, it connects to what I was saying, maybe about this coke being good or a conversation being enjoyable it's just uh, and maybe channeling your husband it's just a fact of how we're wired oh uh, current <laughs> Stephen Steve um, um, that. Through evolution, we've just been endowed with faculties that, in such a way that we cannot go about our lives presum- assuming that we're we're fully intact without perceiving the world uh, morally. It's just something intrinsic.
0: And we can get the morality really, really wrong.
1: Yes, you know. Yeah.
0: Um, and there I think there really are mistakes being made, fallacy often oh, this is not really a human being in, this, in the way that these others are human beings, right? And the way I am a human being, and the ones I love are, and that's a fallacy. Um, but, so, you know, this can get us into very bad moralities, but that we think in terms of ought, that's just being human. Um, that's just being human. So, yeah. To me, it answers, just because of the euthyphro argument, it's much more satisfying than appeal to God. The Lord knows, appeal to God has made an awful mess (laughs) sometimes, you know, terribly. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. It still does. You know, bringing Spinoza back into things, I think I read that you have said that I mean his his work his opus The Ethics is maybe your favorite or at least one of your favorite or certainly one of the most important philosophical works for you and I understand though that I, I haven't read The Ethics but that it it covers I mean all aspects of his system of philosophy not just ethics but what precisely how did he think about morality and ethics
0: you know it's not I think that my views, although I think so much in terms of, um, you know, science since it's developed in the three and a half centuries since he died, you know, and very much in terms of natural selection and physics, entropy, you know, where all living systems are ball- battling against the entropic odds. And what that means is we, we have to treat ourselves as if we matter. It's kind of the organizing principle of all the instincts, right? It's, it's, it's not even an instinct. It's kind of it's deeper than that. So we're sort of pushing back against entropy and, and, and which means devoting an awful, you know, regarding ourselves as the most, is deserving to, to, uh, to survive and to thrive. Um, and that's, it's just, it's built in there. But Spinoza, interestingly, has this um, notion of conitas, which comes from the Latin for to strive, and he he identifies it as 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 the um, individuating principle, as the kind of what, what constitutes the identity of each thing. Each thing is striving to persist and to thrive um, in its own existence. I mean, he doesn't have. Notions of entropy, notions of natural selection to back it up. Spinoza I and mean, Galen Str- Strassen once wrote this to me: Spino- that, that Spinoza seems, in all of his intuitions, even though it's like, you know, there wasn't very much science when he was starting out there in the 17th century, his intuitions are just so on target, and you know, and and and, and, and it can be used. I mean, we can use modern science like like entropy, like natural selection to, to fill them in. But yeah, so for him, this is like a starting point where what our psychology is like, you know, what are what, what each thing is trying to do, this conitas. And so and he tries to drive you know ethics from both that. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, and also his notion of what reality really consists in this this maximal maximal ordinate being um, that is uh, dictated by logic, by, by, by necessity. Um, and so, you know, so that whatever can exist does exist and out of that comes everything. Um, and, and to the extent that we understand this, we get out of ourselves, we get perspective, we understand that uh, to act in our own interests, is to act in everybody's interests. All of this stuff, you know, uh, comes out. And we, and, and we you know, it's, it's a little bit like Plato too, you know, and if we're going to have, the only thing that can mitigate our pettiness and our constricted focus on ourselves, um, our, our worst instincts, um, egocentrism, um, is reality itself the full force of reality, which is so grand, such a, again, object of wonder and reverence, um, that we can attain some kind of grandeur and reverence and nobility. He likes that word, nobility, um, in the process. So that's his ethics.
1: I'm not sure if you mentioned this, and I I just think I had a stroke of originality that I I just forgot that you said it half an hour ago, but did M- Mattering at all come out of Konitas? Did it influence you there?
0: Um, Ma- Mattering in Spinoza? Does he talk about it? Or?
1: No. Your view on Mattering, was it informed by... Totally.
0: Totally. <laughs> yes. It is what I like to think of as, you know, Spinoza knew all science. <laughs> yeah.
1: Huh. I also can... Uh, you mentioned panpsychism uh, very early on in the conversation. And that seems to connect to this as well, uh, because you said each thing is trying to strive. And I'm wondering, was that limited to living things or all things are striving? For Spinoza,
0: it's all things. You know, Spinoza is a anti-dualist of all dualists. You know, all of our dualisms, he, he wants to explode nature versus god um reason versus emotion um and um and you know in some sense you know mental versus physical yeah i would say mental versus physical yes too it's all this unity is meant to explode all dualities and he is you know
1: yeah and if i'm not mistaken galen strawson is interested in panpsychism is that why he was connected to Spinoza?
0: I don't know. That's a good question. Hmm. Um, I know that um, Philip Goff, who was a student, right, of Straussen, of Galen Strauss? I think he was his graduate student. And when he was still a graduate student, he did this book on you know, uh, a collection of essays um, on um, on Spinoza, and I think that um, I think that his panpsychism is probably also somewhat informed by work on Spinoza.
1: Very cool. Philip and I are, are talking soon, so I'll have to. Ask yeah, do him ask that him that. that. Yeah. Are Are you a panpsychist now or?
0: I don't know. I, I very. I go back and forth between a mysterian and a panpsychist. You know, a
1: a mysterian.
0: Mysterian.
1: I don't know oh, that word.
0: Just that. Um, I don't know. You, it's it, it the sort of thing that I was saying before that um, we know so very little that it's hard to say. Oh, does it come from matter? I mean, you know, is it or is it all? You know, it is the if we knew the laws of matter with more refinement, more complexity, more completeness, we would be able to see that consciousness gets out of, comes out of it. You know, um, so we're just stuck now in this mystery. Um, I go back and forth between that and panpsychism. Well, it's got to be built into the very basic of matter. You know, it's got in, into the, the the complete description of matter would show us that something like proto consciousness is built in uh, at the very fundamental level. I go back and forth.
1: Hmm. What hmm. about you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think I, uh, along with well, Sean, as you said, is convinced that our physics is is quite complete, it seems, or we have all the pieces at least. Uh, And consequently, that we absolutely don't need to do any revising to account for consciousness. I am not so confident about that, though I have vanishingly little understanding of physics relative to him. So my opinion here doesn't hold that much weight. But I still cling to the hope that physics, at least in the spirit in which we've been, uh, undertaking it will will um, explain consciousness. That's at least what I'm hoping for at this point.
0: Yeah, it's but good. I, I also
1: yeah. I, I find the hard problem hard to wrap my head around. And while I don't understand how we could ever verify panpsychism, if if somehow physics bottomed out and we had no idea what was going on, then I think I would begrudgingly convert to panpsychism and just assume that everything has some qualitative uh, component to it that we can't get to quantitatively. Yeah.
0: Well, I just find it unlikely that mathematical description, quantitative description, you know, which is basically – You know, describing little things in motion, right? I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing that we can capture in in our mathematical language. I mean, even the notion of a field is, you know, how would something move when it is in you know different parts of the field? And you know, it's always that that is getting everything. You know, when Bertrand Russell said, you know, it's not, you know, it's not even getting to the intrinsic properties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, that, that to me makes a lot, a lot of sense. So I, I, you know, I tend to think that if we, you know, and if you go back to the 17th century, man, they were, you know, so, you know, there's Spinoza and there's Galileo. And he makes this, you know, fundamental move, right? primary secondary you know if we can describe it in mathematical language it's really objective it's out there if math can't capture it you know the difference between red and yellow okay light frequencies that we can that we can capture in mathematical language but the felt difference experience between you know red and green well then it's secondary and it's in the mind um and it's caused by the interaction between what's out there and our Nervous system, or you know, that was so fundamental. You know, is that's the break with Aristotle. Um, you know, instead of final causes, we've got mathematical description, observation formulated in mathematical language. We can develop these mathematical relationships, we can discover, we can go deeper and deeper. But what an assumption to think, you know, that what's out there. All that's out there, that's complete. We get a complete description of that um, in describing it mathematically. And if it's not subject to that, it can't be captured in the language of mathematics. It's in the mind. And then we have the problem. Well, <laughs> how do we get what's in the mind? What we dumped in the mind out of this mathematical description. Um, and yeah, so it's just, you know, what what's made physics work, it seems to me, was a basic assumption um that math can be captured in mathematics and I, I just see no reason and to me you know it's just yeah it might have worked i mean there are internal problems with 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 physics anyway there's tension between relativity theory and quantum mechanics and you know with there's all of that um but um time you know <laughs> what is it really what is it really uh but um consciousness also is just uh, it seems to me to be saying you know if you don't have it all I you don't know it's 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 we, we don't have it all it's you've done really well with what you have math I don't know yeah that's that's uh, I think it'd have to be like hmm so, so so Sean thinks we will be able to get it out not that we have gotten it out but we will be able to get it out
1: yeah yeah I think so okay mm. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> I, I, I i I pray that I live to see the day because I think that would be a tremendous triumph and and that would be such a triumph of of our collective scientific endeavors
1: well one thing Rebecca one thing I wanted to ask you about before we ended, and maybe if you want i can I can cut this out we can skip this but we sort of delayed this conversation by a few months because you were working on a new book, and you're still working on it. I just was curious what the what the project is.
0: <laughs> yes, um, mattering.
1: <laughs> mattering. Okay. Is it a, a novel or is it full?
0: No, no, it's not. Um, you know, and it's uh, just why we have this. You know, starting with entropy. <laughs> and um, go and going to natural selection. And then and then our neurophysiology that allows us to, you know, self reflection, self transcendence, this question, very outside of ourselves. And um, what it's what it's wrought in our world for both better and worse, I see four types of I don't, um, of mattering st- strategies. I it, actually way, way back in that, the book on, um, the, the my body problem, that novel, I had come up with this idea of the mattering map, um, you know, that they were real we'll by these different regions and in, in terms of, you know, how we're trying to prove to ourselves that we're deserving of all of this, um, uh, attention that we give ourselves, um, regarding ourselves as, you know, just to live our lives, have to regard ourselves as more important than we know that we are. Um, And um, so, you know, many, many regions of this, and that's, that's been like a source of inquiry for me ever since I wrote that novel, and I'm always talking to people about their sense of memory, what how they pursue it, what their meaning-making project is, have they changed it? Do they were they born into it? You know, is, is it it? I don't. To me, this just generates it's such a, uh, such interesting stories about people, and um, and and it's interesting. I found over, I guess I've been asking these questions for forty years now of people. Um, so I got way too much information, but um, then when people get the point of the, your question it's just that they've, they've been waiting their whole lives for somebody to ask them this question, like, how, where, you know, how are you, you know, I have spoken to ex-Nazis about this and I'm afraid to talk to current Nazis about it, but I probably should, but I have <laughs> spoken to ex-Nazis about it and um, it just they're for, sort of, you know, and, and of course, you know, religious people. And, um, but I, I see four, kinds of major strategies there's what i call cosmic matter you know cosmic petitioning please the world has to be this way um you know some kind of grounded on some kind of metaphysics um so that we we really do matter in this very maximal way um and that is the most maximalist notion of mattering i think it's another reason why it's so pleasing to be um, to be religious, or at least spiritual. Um, and psychologists have done all this testing, man. It's, religious people do have a much higher sense of life satisfaction, not necessarily of happiness, but of life satisfaction, purpose, and meaning in their life, you know, because that's just a maximalist sense of mattering. There's what I call a heroic striving. People like me <laughs> probably like striving. you, some kind of, intellectual work or artistic work or athletic or ethical, ethical, striving, you know, but I'm going to do something that's really, really hard. <laughs> and that makes me matter. Um, at least to myself. It justifies me to myself. I mean, it doesn't have to be like your name up the lights and anybody knows about it, but it can be the most quiet and modest thing. But justifying myself to myself. You know, I think that's what mattering is really about. Um, Cosmic mattering, heroic mattering, um, uh, uh, relationships. And it's so interesting, so many people, when I ask them, what, how do you pursue your Matt? What, what, what does mattering mean to mattering to others?
1: You mm. know? We're social creatures.
0: We are gregarious creatures. We are gregarious creatures. Absolutely. And so close relationships and sometimes terrible relationships. You know, I think that the striving for fame is such a huge thing, Um, is, you know, like for lots of attention from lots of people, you know, to matter to lots of people who find you deserving of their attention. You know, and I I, I put that in the, and then they're the sort of competitors who really understand mattering is mattering more than others. And to, to the extent that somebody matters as much or more than they do, they they matter less. It's kind of a zero something. Trump is a perfect example, um, you know. But they don't have to be bad, you know. They can be. They can be seem like heroic strivers. They can be, um, you know, also tr- striving to do something very much motivated by being better than others. Whereas I think of heroic strivers as in competition with themselves, not with not with others, you know. Um, anyway i'm real interested in these questions it's kind of why are we like this what has it done where should it lead us morally so it's my it's a little yeah and it's very much inspired by spinoza very
1: much great (laughs) well it would be totally lovely to talk again. I mean, when you are finished with this book, to get into more depth on on the project, I find it very compelling that it begins with entropy and natural selection and physiology, because tying the the natural world to the lived world uh, is a is a daunting challenge. It's a really
0: but, daunting challenge, but I think I think a naturalist view of ethics is I think it beats the uh, the religious view. Um, I really do, I think that we can grant. And that is, again, that that is Spinoza. He's the first person of the modern world who try to ground, that's what the ethics means, grounding it in naturalism. So I, yeah, I'm just entirely inspired by him. He is my, you know, and I used to say I, I'm the only, um, well, I used to live in New York, I used to say I'm the only intellectual Jew who's never been in um, psychoanalysis or any kind of therapy. and just reads Spinoza you know when I'm down and yeah I can't go further he just lifts me up he uh, gives me perspective
1: that's so funny the only intellectual Jew who hasn't been in psychoanalysis but um, this has been so fun I'm already very much looking forward to round two and getting more into the mattering because it's I mean it's very important for my life too these are the questions that I ask I've just never used the the words mattering or striving. Uh, yeah, I also love
0: or. the fact that it's the word matter, you know, that seems to me that what defines us is we are creatures of matter who long to matter. That's what we are. And that's where our triumph and our atrocities come from, you know? So, um, but I I love the word matter.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, I, that connection, I... I hadn't really drawn that connection until you just said it, but it is great. I mean, it, again, it ties the the natural to the lived world, but uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time and having this conversation with me. Thank you. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Airham.